thirst is a powerful motivator. The human body is two-thirds comprised of water. It has been said that if your body's water supply is reduced by only 2%, your energy level could plummet by up to 20%. It is true that physical dehydration is all-consuming. If you are thirsty, you'll do just about anything to get a tall, cold glass of water because physical thirst is a powerful motivator. However, as strong as physical thirst may be, your spiritual thirst has an even greater influence over your life. Most people would agree that we are more than physical beings. We are spiritual beings. And our spiritual thirst drives us to make daily decisions. We have a spiritual thirst for love and affirmation. We have a spiritual thirst for fulfillment and contentment. We have a spiritual thirst for significance and success. And if there is ever spiritual dehydration, and if it's not met properly, it will cause you to make daily decisions that literally will wreck your life. Today we continue our sermon series entitled, Who's Your One? Who is the one person that you're close to who's not close to the Lord? Along the way, we will examine one-on-one encounters that Jesus had with various individuals in his ministry. Today, I want to introduce you to an anonymous woman of John chapter 4. And this woman had a spiritual thirst, and she was spiritually dehydrated, and she didn't even know it. If you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 4. I'll begin reading at verse 4. I'll conclude at verse 26. And once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. John, chapter 4. Allow me to begin at verse 4. Now he, being Jesus, had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I... I have no husband, she replied. 
Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands. The man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, well, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, the preaching, the understanding and obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. It was a hot, sweltering Palestinian day. Jesus and his disciples were making a return trip to Galilee from Judea. In verse 4, John tells us that he, being Jesus, had to go through Samaria. That is an interesting statement. It's interesting because most Jews went out of their way to avoid Samaria. It is true that Samaria is sandwiched between Galilee to the north and Judea to the south. And while it's also true that the shortest distance between two points always seems to be a straight line, most Jews in this day would travel a great distance to avoid stepping foot in Samaritan soil. Jews hated Samaritans. Samaritans hated Jews. This deep-seated animosity went back more than 700 years. In the year 722 B.C., the Assyrians invaded the northern kingdom of Israel. They destroyed much, deported many, and some of the Assyrians began to intermingle with the Israelite women. What resulted was a generation of people that had a flair for Judaism, but also a pretty good mixture of pagan Assyrianism. And so uh, these people that resulted after the Assyrian attack were known as Samaritans. To a devout Jew, a Samaritan was impure, one who was filthy, one who had a heritage of Judaism, but also a pretty good mixture of pagan tradition from that God-forsaken place of Assyria. So Samaritans were regarded by Jews as something that is, is somebody to be avoided at all cost. So most people in the days of Jesus, if they were good, upstanding, devout Jews, they would go out of their way not to step foot in Samaritan territory. But Jesus had to go through Samaria. You know, Jesus is not your average Jew. He came along to obliterate every man-made barrier. Every barrier that divides, whether it's gender or generation, Every barrier that divides, whether it's social or economic, every barrier that divides, whether it's racial or ethnic, Jesus came to knock down every man-made barrier. He had to go through Samaria. 
On this particular day, Jesus knew his marching orders. On this day, he knew his navigation route. On this day, he had to go through Samaria. The town was called Sakar. It was the plot of land that Jacob had given to his beloved son, Joseph. And it's on that plot of land that Jacob dug a well. It was a well that provided water for all the people living in and around Sakar. Sakar was not a very big city. It was a small town. It was a town where everybody knew everybody else's business. I grew up in a town like that. Have you ever lived in a town like that? Where it's so small that everybody knows everybody else's junk. Everybody knows everybody else's business. And if they don't know other people's business, they just make up what they think somebody else's business ought to be. And so you know how it is to live in a small town where the grapevine is always ripe with the latest gossip. That's Sakar. This is the town that provides the backdrop for this one-on-one encounter. It's at this moment that John introduces us to a Samaritan woman. For me to say introduce, I use that term loosely. He doesn't even give us her name. We don't know this nameless individual. We just know that she's a woman who lived in the town of Sakar, and she was one of those Samaritans. If you take a close look at this woman, you can tell she has the weight of the world on her shoulders. She comes to draw water. She's alone. She comes in the sixth hour. That tells us it's high noon. She comes in the heat of the day. If you look closely at this woman, you'll discover that her eyebrows are furrowed. Her eyes, they don't dance. Her skin doesn't glow. Her head is downcast. She looks as if she has the weight of the world upon herself. Her shoulders are slumped. She makes her way to that well. And I've already said she's traveling alone. That's uncommon. She's coming when the heat is intense. That's unthinkable. Most ladies that lived in Sakar, they would come to draw water and they would come in groups. They would come with their neighbors and their friends. Uh, all the ladies would gather and they would usually come in the early morning hours when the heat was not so intense and enormous and as they traveled they would um, share the latest gossip you know the number one thing people like to talk about are other people have you discovered that I mean people like to talk about people and this was a great opportunity for these ladies to spill the tea this is a great opportunity for them to get all the deets all the information because they want to know who did what and where and, and how and how often and what was going on and what was going on around town this was a great way for all the ladies just to catch up on all the gossip of the town but this woman this woman doesn't travel with any friends she's alone and she comes in the heat of the day, you would almost think that she was wishing that she wouldn't bump into anybody. As she made her way closer to the well, she looked up and saw that seated there was a man. And not just any man, but she could tell by his clothing he was a Jewish man. She got nervous. 
You see, this woman had stopped trusting men a long time ago. Her palms got sweaty. Her stomach began to churn. Uh, Her mind was looking for the quickest exit route, but she knew she couldn't leave without water. She had to have water in order to survive. So she thought to herself, if I just tiptoe up to the well, if I gingerly drop my bucket into the well as to not even make a splash, then maybe he won't even turn around and notice I'm there. Maybe I can be so quick, so fast, that he won't even uh, give me the time of day. After all, he is a Jew, I am a Samaritan, and he is a man and I am a woman. It's Jesus who breaks the silence. Will you please, ma'am, give me a drink of water? His words kind of caught her off guard. She quickly thought to herself, what is the fastest thing I can say that would bring this conversation to a conclusion? So she just blurted out this, "Um, you are a Jewish man, I am a Samaritan woman. In other words, I know my place, I know our culture. We hate each other, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. And furthermore, in our culture, um, a man is not supposed to publicly talk to a woman. And you're engaging me in conversation? Let me just shut this down as fast as I possibly can. You are a Jewish man. I am a Samaritan woman. I'm sure that she thought that this man wouldn't say anything else. But she didn't know Jesus, did she? Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew who it was that was asking you for a drink, then you would ask him for a drink. And he would give you living water. Living water? This woman had never heard of that. Water that has life in it? Water that gives purpose and meaning for existence? Living water? She'd never heard that phrase. And so it it captured her attention, so she continued in the conversation. How can you get water? You have nothing to draw with. The well is over 100 feet deep. Are you greater than our father Jacob? I mean, how can you get water from this well? And Jesus said, oh, I'm not talking about literal H2O. I'm talking about spiritual H2O. You drink from this well, you'll get thirsty again. You drink the water I give, you'll never thirst. It'll well up inside of you unto eternal life. First he said living water, then he said eternal life. Last week we discovered that in the conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus introduces this concept of eternal life. It's it's a phrase that John uses 17 times in his gospel. Eternal life, life without end. Last week we said that this eternal life is found and bound in Jesus, for a person must be born again in order to have this eternal life. And here in our passage, Jesus says that eternal life is connected with this living water which will cause you to never thirst again. Oh, this woman is now on the edge of her proverbial seat. She is fully engaged in the conversation. She's dialed in to what Jesus is talking about. If Jesus, this man, if he's saying that he can give me something where I will never thirst, not just in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense, if he can give me something that will quench the longing of my heart, I'm all in. If he has something that he can provide to me that will give me living water that will spring into eternal life, life without end, that's what I want because this woman knew she was dead inside. She knew there was no life, no real meaning, no real purpose in her life. 
She knew that she was quenched and she was parched and hoping that something would quench her spiritual thirst. She'd been longing for something to satisfy. And nothing in life had been able to satisfy. She's on the edge of her seat. She's ready. We would say she's on the brink of salvation. I mean, all Jesus has to do is offer the invitation, sing one stanza of Just As I Am, and she will come down the aisle, fill out the card, and pray the prayer. I mean, she's ready to give her life to Christ, whatever it looks like to drink of this living water. I don't know what living water is. She must think to herself, I don't know what it looks like, what it smells like, what is it even going to taste like. I don't know if it's going to cost me anything, but I'm in. I want this living water because I'm longing for eternal life. And if you can give it, I'll do whatever you say. She's right there. She's ready to receive salvation. And then Jesus says to her, go, call your husband. Now, as the reader, you think to yourself, this is odd. Why does he bring up the husband? Nobody's talked about a husband. She didn't insinuate she had a husband. It's not like she has to have a husband in order to accept Jesus Christ as Savior. I mean, she could do that on her own. I mean, Jesus came to seek and to save anybody, whether Jew or Gentile, male or female. It doesn't matter. Why does Jesus say she needs to go call her husband? Jesus, this doesn't really make any sense. I mean, she's ready to receive you as Savior. Don't get distracted. Jesus, don't get off task. Stay focused, Messiah. Stay focused on what's in front of you. This lost person needs your eternal life. She wants the living water. Why are you bringing up the husband? As soon as he said, go call your husband, this woman who was so engaged in the conversation, locking eyes with Jesus, as soon as he said, go call your husband, she quickly darted her eyes to the ground. She began to back up just a little bit and kind of kick the sand with her sandals. She said, um, sir, I, I have no husband. Awkward, right? It's an awkward situation. Jesus said, go call your husband. I don't have a husband. It's as awkward as going up to a woman and saying, you have such a glow. How far along are you? only to discover she's not pregnant. Embarrassing, awkward. How do you pivot from that? How do you back out of that one? I mean, Jesus, you just put your foot in your sanctified mouth. I mean, Jesus, you said, go call your husband, and this woman doesn't have a husband. What do you expect Jesus to do? You expect him to be kind and compassionate and tender loving you expect him to say oh i'm so sorry but no jesus goes in for the kill he says you're right when you say you have no husband in fact you've had five husbands and the sixth guy that you're shacking up with he ain't your husband either is he girlfriend darling what you said is exactly the truth jesus what are you doing Right? As the reader of the text, you say, Jesus, what are you doing? Has the heat made you cranky? I mean, what's going on here, Jesus? This doesn't sound like you, you know, to kind of stick the knife in and then twist a little bit and make her really feel the pain. I mean, Jesus, what are you doing? Why bring up the divorce? 
Why bring up the illicit affairs? Why bring up the promiscuity? Why bring up the broken, shattered homes? Why why bring all this up, Jesus? She was on the edge of salvation, and now you throw all this in her face. She's going to run as fast as she can back to Sakaar. Jesus, what are you doing? And I think that Jesus brings all this up because Jesus wants this woman to know just how thirsty she truly is. This woman had been longing to to quench the thirst of her spiritual life through the sensual embrace of another man. And every romance left her empty and longing for something more. So she would go from another relationship to another relationship to another relationship. She was the gal who never could be alone. She always had to have a significant other, always had to have somebody that she thought would give her worth and value, fulfillment in life. And she was willing to do whatever needed to be done in order to keep that man. Oh, but then eventually that man would break her heart and walk away or or maybe she would be the one that would end the relationship because things were just getting a little too close and crazy. But regardless, she went from relationship to relationship to relationship, maybe from marriage to marriage to marriage. Eventually, she gave up on marriage. She simply said, let's just just coexist, cohabitate. Let's just live together. She had given up on everything. And Jesus wanted her to know just how thirsty She was. See, I I think that this woman is not the exception. I think she's the norm. Because every person is broken and sinful and thirsty. Every person. Every person is broken and sinful and thirsty, longing for someone or something to quench their thirst. The one that you're thinking about the one that God has laid upon your heart to pray for and to look for opportunities to share the gospel, that one, I promise you, is broken and sinful and thirsty. And he or she is looking and longing for something to satisfy. Because we are sinful, we are completely destroyed, we are totally marred, from the top of our head to the bottom of our feet, from the inside out. We are broken, we are sinful, we are thirsting, and our spiritual thirst, if it's not properly addressed, will cause us to make decisions that will wreck our life. This is exactly what this woman was doing, and Jesus wanted her to realize that the decisions you're making on a daily basis, it is not quenching your thirst. It's as good as trying to combat physical dehydration by drinking sand. It doesn't help at all. And yet you're going from relationship to relationship thinking that will give you fulfillment, that will give you contentment. And at the end of the day, you're just as parched as ever before. Jesus says, I want you to know just how thirsty you really are. This woman, she's not the exception, she's the norm. People today, just like in the days of Jesus, they strive to fill their life with contentment through relationships. 
through sexual promiscuity, through lust, through pornography, through alcohol, through other drugs, an attempt just to belong, maybe even an attempt to have self-medicine that helps take the pain away. Sometimes people just want to stuff their life with stuff and it's materialism that they're clinging to, hoping that materialism will give them significance in life. And still other people say, no, I want power, I want popularity, I want prestige, I want prominence. And when the, when the, when the uh, a businessman or businesswoman makes it to the corner office on the third floor, when the athlete makes it to the pinnacle of his career and he's got all the championships, you've heard the stories just like I have, that they, that they come to the conclusion, is this all there is to life? Is this it? Getting all the stuff? Having all the power? Getting all the championships, is this it? Is this life? Having all the relationships in the world that we want to have, is this the meaning of life? And people are parched, and they don't know how to quench their thirst. Whether you think you're as noble as Nicodemus or as scandalous as this Samaritan woman, for anybody and everybody, the only person that will quench your thirst is Jesus. And for your one, that one person who you know who doesn't know God, for your one, the only person that will quench your one's thirst is Jesus. That's it. Because that person, like yourself, broken, sinful, thirsty. Jesus brings up all of this sin, all this brokenness, just to show this woman how thirsty she truly is. Go call your husband. I have no husband. That's right. Because you've been trying to satisfy your life with broken relationship after broken relationship, broken marriage after broken marriage, broken promise after broken promise. You've had five husbands, and the sixth guy that you're now with, he's really not your husband, is he? What you have said is the truth. It's at this moment that the woman tried to change the subject of the conversation. Friend, if you take the model of the Messiah in your conversation with people, and if you, if you bring up their sin in front of their eyes, they will probably do the same thing to you that this woman does to Jesus. Let's just change the subject. What you're talking about is too close. It's too personal. Let's just change the subject to something that's not so close and not so personal. Hey, I can tell you're a religious guy. Let's talk about worship. You Jews say that we ought to worship in Jerusalem. We Samaritans say we ought to worship on this mountain. But you know, who really knows? And Jesus says, you worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know. And really the answer is not the place of worship, but how you worship. For my father is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. That's the kind of worshipers my father seeks. She thought to herself, wow, this is not your first religious rodeo. I mean, that was a pretty good answer. You must be a prophet. I tell you what, we can both agree that one day Messiah's coming. I mean, whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Samaritan, we can both agree that the Messiah is coming. And I tell you what, when he comes, he'll answer all the questions. And Jesus locked eyes with this woman and said, I who, I who am speaking to you am he. I am the Messiah. Friend, she nearly tripped over her bucket. 
I mean, she thought to herself, whoa, okay, this guy is now claiming Christ? He's claiming to be the long-awaited Messiah? Could he be the long-awaited Messiah? You know, he did tell me stuff that he, he doesn't know. How would he know about all of my sin? How would he know about all my brokenness? But he, he's got a God complex. He thinks that he's Messiah. Boy, this is, this is a little weird. So she went back to Sakaar as fast as her scandalous sandals would carry her. And when she got back to the village people, and when I say village people, I mean the people living in the village of Sakar. I don't mean the band who sang the 1978 hit YMCA. But when she got back to the village people, she said, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. As soon as she gave that invitation to the people in her sphere of influence, come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done, they began to laugh. They say, woman, we live in Sakar. Everybody knows what you've ever done. Everybody knows what you've done and who you've done it with and where you've done it. I mean, everybody knows. Anybody could tell you what you've always done. No, 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 no. This man's different. I've never met this man before. He's a Jewish prophet. He's, he's maybe a rabbi. I, I don't know. But could he be the Christ? Come see a man. Who told me everything I've ever done? Could he be the Christ? By her simple invitation, the people in her village, they went out to Jacob's well. When they heard Jesus, John tells us they begged him to stay. And he held a two-day revival. For two days, he preached. And in verse 42 of John chapter 4, the people of the village, they come back to this woman and they say, listen, we no longer believe just because of your testimony. He told me everything I've ever done. Now we've heard and we believe he is the savior of the world. Whoa, based on this woman's testimony, come and see, could he be the Christ? Just by that one simple invitation of that woman going to people in her sphere of influence saying, please, come and see. This man told me everything I've ever done. Could he be the Christ? Come, see. Just check it out for yourself. I'm not a used car salesman. I'm not trying to put a lot of pressure on you. I just want you to come and see. Could it be that he's the Christ? And when they went out and when they engaged Jesus on his terms, at his level, he convinced them that he is the Christ, not just the Savior of Jew and Samaritan, but the Savior of the whole stinking world. That's how John describes it. We believe, not just because of your testimony, but we have heard for ourselves. And we believe he's the Savior of the world. You see, Jesus spoke his word to the people. And his word never returns empty and void. His word always accomplishes what he sets forth for it to accomplish. And these people trusted in the word, Jesus, and the words that came from the word, the spoken word of Christ. And by that, they knew that he was giving them living water that would well up to eternal life. And they concluded, this man is my Savior. This man is my Savior. In fact, he is the only suitable Savior for the entire world. That anybody who places faith in him, their spiritual dehydration will be quenched. Because he 
is the Savior who can satisfy. When I walk away from this story, there are two takeaways that I want you to jot down, especially when we think in the context of this sermon series of who's your one. The first takeaway is simply this, that Jesus makes special trips to special places to save special people. John told us that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Why do he have to? Every other Jew would go out of their way to avoid Samaria. Oh, the reason he went was because he makes special trips to special places to save special people. This woman was special to Jesus. When I use the word special, I mean precious. She was precious in the sight of God. John doesn't even give us her name. But Jesus knew her. Jesus had created her. Jesus was her maker. And now Jesus wanted to show her that he could be her savior. She was precious to him. But not just this anonymous woman was precious to Jesus. So were the people living in the village of Sakaar. These people that begged him to stay for two days, he stayed there. Why? Because he knew there'd be a rich harvest of souls. He had said to his disciples, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Because Jesus desperately wanted lost people to find faith in him. John writes his gospel to answer one question, who is Jesus? The purpose statement of John is given in John chapter 20, verse 31. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you too may have life in his name. And John said, this is a great story that fulfills my purpose because Jesus makes special trips to special places to save special people. If you're part of the redeemed, just think back over your testimony. Because there was a time when Jesus made a special trip to your neck of the woods. He made a special trip to a special place to save you, a special person. Maybe you were at your bedside at Logan Station Road in Shelbyville, Kentucky. That's where I was. Maybe you were someplace else in Timbuktu. Maybe you were at a revival. Maybe you were at a camp. Maybe you were at a student retreat. Maybe you're at a worship service. I don't know about where it was, but believer, think back with me. When you came to faith in Jesus Christ, that was a special trip that he made to a special place to save a special person just like yourself. That's what Jesus does all the time. So first and foremost, I want you to know who Jesus is. The second takeaway is that Jesus takes the broken, sinful, thirsty story of you to share with other broken sinful thirsty people to tell them that there is a savior who can fulfill and forgive Jesus takes broken sinful thirsty stories to tell other broken sinful thirsty people that there is a savior who can fulfill and forgive when it comes to your one, Jesus just wants you to tell your story. Just tell your story. That's what this woman did. She told her story, come, see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could he be the Christ? Nobody could argue with her story. That was her story. Friend, if we're part of the redeemed, we share the same Savior, but we don't share the same story. 
Your story is your story. It's a story between you and the Lord. Nobody else lived it but you. It is personal to you, but it's never meant to be private. You are to take your story and tell your story. It doesn't take long. You don't have to give all the gory details. This woman didn't. All she said was, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could he be the Christ? Come see a man who's made all the difference in my life. Could he be the Christ? It only takes a few seconds to tell your story. It doesn't take a long time to tell your story, but it's a simple invitation to come. Come and see. Just come, check it out for yourself. Come and see. Could this be the Christ? Could he be your savior? Could he be the one that can satisfy the longing of your heart? Could he be the one that will satisfy your spiritual dehydration that right now is causing you, beloved, causing you, my one, causing you to make decisions that will wreck your life? So just come and see. Because I know a man who's told me everything I've ever done. Could he be the Christ? Friend, all you got to do for your one is just tell your story. Just tell how Jesus radically changed your life. What does Jesus mean to you? Now tell it. What has he saved you from? Now tell it. How has he impacted your life? Now tell it. Because we got to know who Jesus is. He's the Savior who makes special trips to special places to save special people. And we got to know something about our story. Our story is a story of a broken, sinful, thirsty person who just tells other broken, sinful, thirsty people that there is a Savior and he can fulfill and forgive everything. This is the invitation of the gospel. The invitation is a constant message and beckoning for you to come and see. Come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could he quench your thirst? The psalmist says, um, my soul thirsts for the living God. Isaiah the prophet, he said, all ye who are thirsty, come and drink. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are he who hunger and thirst for righteous, for they will be filled. In John chapter 7, Jesus says, if you believe in me, streams of living water will well up inside of you into eternal life. St. Augustine said, God thirsts to be thirsted after. This whole notion that thirst is a driving motivator is a consistent theme all throughout the Bible. It is true that when we are physically parched, we will make decisions so that we can get a tall glass of cold water. But spiritual thirsting is far more influential in your life. Because if your spiritual thirst goes unquenched, then you'll try to satisfy it in any way in the world. And the worldly ways of satisfying the spiritual thirsting of your life, it will result in your destruction. So, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done because he is the Christ. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. Father, if there's one here who's thirsty, let them find satisfaction in you. Those are not just words. Oh, Father, help us to find fulfillment and contentment in you and you alone. Oh, Father, there may be others who are here, but they have that one pressed upon the image of their mind. They want to take the card, fill it out, put their name on there, and come and lay it here at the altar. 
Oh, Father, please, the one that you've burdened us with, who we are close to but not close to you, Lord, help us to be burdened for that person, to pray for that person, to look for ways just to invite them to come and see that you are the Savior of the world. Oh, Father, use us, we pray, in this holy moment of invitation. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.